0: chapter 2 of the morgansons this is a librivox recording all librivox recordings are in the public domain for more information or to volunteer please visit librivox.org recording by julia leonarden the morgansons by elizabeth stoddard chapter 2 at this time i was 10 years old we lived in a new england village surrey "'which was situated on an inlet of a large bay that opened into the Atlantic. "'From the observatory of our house we could see how the inlet was pinched "'by the long claws of the land which nearly enclosed it. "'Opposite the village, some ten miles across, "'a range of islands shut out the main waters of the bay. "'For miles, on the outer side of the curving prongs of land, "'stretched a rugged, desolate coast,' indented with coves and creeks, lined with boulders of granite half-sunken in the sea, and edged by beaches overgrown with pale sedge or covered with beds of seaweed. Nothing alive, except the gulls, abode on these solitary shores. No lighthouse stood on any point to shake its long, warning light across the mariner's wake. Now and then a drowned man floated in among the sedge, a small craft went to pieces on the rocks. When an easterly wind prevailed the coast resounded with the bellowing sea which brought us tidings from those inaccessible spots. We heard its roar as it leapt over the rocks on Gloucester Point and its long unbroken wail when it rolled in on Whitefoot Beach. In mild weather too when our harbour was quiet we still heard its whimper. Behind the village The ground rose toward the north, where the horizon was bounded by woods of oak and pine, intersected by crooked roads, which led to towns and villages near us. The inland scenery was tame. No hill or dale broke its dull uniformity. Cornfields and meadows of red grass walled with grey stone lay between the village and the border of the woods. Seaward it was enchanting. "'beautiful under the sun and moon and clouds. "'Our family had lived in Surrey for years. "'Probably some Puritan of the name of Morganson "'had moved from an earlier settlement, "'and appropriating a few acres in what was now its centre, "'lived long enough upon them to see his sons and daughters "'married to the sons and daughters of similar settlers. "'So our name was Perpetuation, "'though none of our race ever made a mark in his circle.' "'or attained a place among the great ones of his day. "'The family recipes for curing herbs and hams and making cordials "'were in better preservation than the memory of their makers. "'It is certain that they were not a progressive or changeable family. "'No tradition of any individuality remains concerning them. "'There was a confusion in the minds of the survivors of the various generations "'about the degree of their relationship to those who were buried.' and whose names and ages simply were cut in the stones which headed their graves. The Mayum and tomb of Blood were inexorably mixed, so they contented themselves with giving their children the old Christian names, which were carved on the headstones, and which in time added a still more profound darkness to the anti-heraldic memory of the Morgansons. They had no knowledge of that treasure which so many of our New England families are boastful of, the ancestor who came over in the Mayflower, or by himself, with a grant of land from Parliament. It was not known whether two or three brothers sailed together from the old world and settled in the new. They had no portrait, no curious chair, nor rusty weapon, no old Bible, nor drinking cup, nor remnant of brocade. Morgeson, Born. Lived. Died were all their archives. But there is a dignity in mere perpetuity, a strength in the narrowest affinities. This dignity and strength were theirs. They are still vital in our rural population. Occasionally something fine is their result. An Aboriginal reappears to prove the plastic powers of nature. My great-grandfather, Locke Morganson, the old man whose head I saw bound in a red handkerchief, was the first noticeable man of the name. He was a scale of enthusiasms, ranging from the melancholy to the sarcastic. When I heard him talked of, it seemed to me that he was born under the influence of the sea, while the rest of the tribe inherited the character of the landscape. Comprehension of life and comprehension of self came too late for him to make either of value. The spirit of progress, however, which prompted his schemes, benefited others. The most that could be said of him was that he had the rudiments of a founder. My father, whose name was Locke Morganson also, married early. My mother was five years his elder. Her maiden name was Mary Warren. She was the daughter of Philip Warren of Barmouth, near Surrey. He was the best of the Barmouth tailors, though he never changed the cut of his garments. He was a rigidly pious man. OF GREAT INFLUENCE IN THE CHURCH, AND WAS DESCENDED FROM SIR EDWARD WARREN, A GENTLEMAN OF DEVON, WHO WAS KNIGHTED BY QUEEN ELIZABETH. THE NAME OF HIS MORE IMMEDIATE ANCESTOR, RICHARD WARREN, WAS IN NEW ENGLAND'S MEMORIAL. HOW FATHER FIRST MET MOTHER, I KNOW NOT. SHE WAS SINGULARLY BEAUTIFUL, BEAUTIFUL EVEN TO THE DAY OF HER DEATH, BUT SHE WAS POOR AND WITHOUT CONNECTION for Philip Warren was the last of his name. What the Warrens might have been was nothing to the Morgansons. They themselves had no past, and only realized the present. They never thought of inquiring into that matter, so they opposed, with great promptness father's wish to marry Mary Warren. All except old Locke Morganson, his grandfather, who rode over to Barmouth to see her one day, and when he came back told father to take her, offered him half his house to live in and promised to push him in the world. His offer quelled the rioters, silencing in particular the opposition of John Morganson, father's father. In a month from this time, Locke Morganson, Jr. took Mary Warren from her father's house as his wife. Grandfather Warren prayed a long, unintelligible prayer over them, helped them into the large, yellow-bottomed chaise which belonged to Grandfather Locke, and the young couple drove to their new home, the old mansion. Grandfather Locke went away in the same yellow-bottom chaise a week after, and returned in a few days with a tall lady of fifty by his side, Marm Tamar, a twig of the Morganson tree, being his third cousin, whom he had married. This marriage was Grandfather Locke's last mistake. He was then near eighty, but lived long enough to fulfill his promises to father. The next year I was born, and four years after, my sister Veronica. Grandfather Locke named us, and charged father not to consult the Morganson tombstones for names. End of chapter 2 Recording by Julia Lenardin